traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When I first got into the business, you're looking to survive. There was a fight to get any content to market to get the game to actually stand up and to run. Alex Hutchinson started out making video games in the early 2000s. At that time, the US market was worth $10 billion, and Alex was working on a version of The Sims for the Nintendo GameCube. Now, the gaming market in the US is worth $100 billion, and close to $200 billion globally, producing blockbuster titles like Grand Theft Auto, Fortnite, and Call of Duty. The gaming industry has not only grown rapidly, but also changed the way it thinks about its creative ambitions. Alex, who co-founded his own gaming company, Raccoon Logic, sets the bar high. I always pitch the team that we're looking for an emotional hook. So now we're really focused on making something great and something important, and not just focused on making something work. As the industry ups its ambitions, actors, composers, and creative minds from Hollywood are being attracted to gaming. Some games are now so good that they earn their own Hollywood adaptations. HBO's post-apocalyptic series The Last of Us is seeing the sort of -of out-of-the-box success that could pave a path for more such adaptations. As an industry, gaming has often been considered a niche part of the media landscape. But for consumers, it has something no other medium can offer. You know, we can allow you to be an active participant in an experience, not just a passive observer. And I think that's something that's so monstrous and so exciting and so vast that it will only grow. But as gaming levels up, challenges lie ahead. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fullwood. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, how gaming took over media. First, we'll get a sense of the scale of the games industry. Spending on video games worldwide was about $185 billion, and that's about five times more than people spent on the cinema box office, for example, and about five times more than they spent on recorded music. Then we'll take a look at how the traditional media landscape is responding. It's nervousness about the fact that I think the games industry has become such a huge money-making enterprise. And the feeling is, though, there's a little bit of trepidation that potentially it could replace traditional forms of entertainment. And finally, we'll ask what the future holds for gaming. I think it'll make it tricky to figure out the right balance, to figure out the right value proposition for a streaming subscription model for games. But I don't think that it's impossible. 
Hey, Alice and Mike. Hi, Tom. Hey, Tom. So, are you two big gamers? I can't say I am. I did get into EU4, a strategy game, quite heavily during some time in quarantine over and over again during the pandemic, trying to get in and out of Hong Kong, but not a sort of regular gamer, I would say. I hadn't played any games probably for more than a decade until the pandemic. And then I uh, started dabbling in The Sims, which is unfortunately a classic girl game during 2020. Yes, I'm also not a big gamer, but I have to say I don't mind the occasional wordle. Tom, that does make you sound absolutely ancient. You do the crossword equivalent of a video game. Well, it's funny you say that. I actually do enjoy doing crosswords as well. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) wordle is not exactly what the industry would call a AAA game like Call of Duty or Fortnite, but it is still technically a video game. And the fact that I occasionally dabble in it makes me part of the 3.2 billion people worldwide who play some kind of video game each year. And that number of players has made it an enormous business. In fact, its value has already surpassed that of books, music, and the cinema. And it now vies with television to be the largest part of the media business. To better understand the growth of gaming, I asked our colleague and games industry expert, Tom Wainwright, to join us for a chat. Hi, Tom. Welcome back to Money Talks. Thanks, Tom. So video games have gone through a pretty incredible phase of growth in recent decades, Could you start by giving us some perspective on the scale of this industry today? Yeah, sure. Well, so last year, for instance, spending on video games worldwide was about $185 billion. And that's one of those big numbers that's kind of hard to get a grip on unless you compare it to other stuff. And so if you look at other media, that's about five times more than people spent on the cinema box office, for example, and about five times more than they spent on recorded music. And something that really jumped out at me is it's substantially more even than they spent on video streaming services like Netflix and Disney+. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, we write a lot about the video streaming wars and all of that stuff. And I think video games is something that we've possibly not done enough on, given how big it is. Right. And once upon a time, gaming was, I think, seen somewhat dismissively as this thing that bored teenagers did. But that's no longer the case, is it? No, you're right. That's something that's changed. And I think that's one of the big factors behind all this growth that we've seen. I think the key thing here really is the arrival of the smartphone, which means that everybody now has a device in their pocket, which is pretty capable of playing games. And it's also unlocked a load of extra time for gaming as well. You know, if you think in the past, if you were on the bus or on the tube or whatever, you'd see people reading books and newspapers and reading The Economist and that kind of thing. These days, people tend to be deep in their phones and a lot of them are gaming. And so I think the smartphone really has opened up gaming now to people who previously perhaps didn't play at all. And so when we look at who plays games, the gender split now is fairly even. Something like 45% of people who call themselves gamers now are are women. And the age split is interesting too. I saw a survey in the UK which found among people of, I think it was 50 and above, more than half now play video games. And, you know, they're not all playing Call of Duty necessarily. You know, there are things like let's say Candy Crush or Wordle even, which we might not think of as being classic video games, but you know they are video games and they've opened up the market now to a whole bunch of people who previously wouldn't really have thought of themselves as gamers. And could you tell us a bit about how the industry is structured today? In recent years, we've seen some 
big tech players muscling into the gaming space, but we also have companies like, say, Sony that have been in the business for a long time. So what is the lay of the land here? Yeah, it's an interesting thing that's changed in recent years. As you say, there have long been some big companies that have been involved. Sony's one example. Microsoft is another one which has been in the games business for quite a long time. But what we've seen recently is other big tech companies get into gaming, which previously weren't. And I'm thinking particularly really of Apple and Google, which, again, because of the smartphone, those two companies have become almost by accident huge distributors of games because of the app stores. So Apple now obviously controls the App Store on iOS, and it's getting into its own games business too with a a gaming subscription product called Apple Arcade. And it's not that big by all accounts. Apple doesn't release numbers, but it's estimated not to be huge. But it's an interesting step into gaming for Apple. Similarly, Google, through its App Store, controls a big, big part of the mobile gaming market. And it's been trying to get into gaming too. It had this experiment called Stadia, which was a game streaming service, which it shut down because it wasn't very successful. But it's now pivoted to offering a service to help other companies who want to do so-called live service games, which are essentially kind of always on online games, which require a lot of quite complicated tech behind the scenes to make them work. Another thing that you see is Hollywood companies getting more into gaming. Netflix is the most obvious example here primarily known, obviously, as a TV video streamer, it now offers a big library of mobile games as part of its subscription. And it seems to be looking into offering those games as a streaming service onto televisions as well. So you've got a whole bunch of companies, some of them extremely well-resourced, getting into this space, which previously weren't. And that's changed things quite a lot. You know, we've seen big, big tech valuations recently of game companies. Microsoft at the moment is trying to buy Activision Blizzard, which is one of the biggest game developers. It makes games like Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, is trying to buy that company for nearly $70 billion, which would be one of the biggest tech acquisitions of all time. Thanks so much, Tom. And do stick around because we'll be coming back to you a little later in the show. Yeah, sounds good. So one company that has historically operated in the film and television space is the production company Bad Robot. And increasingly, they've become interested in the gaming space and have in the last couple of years started a gaming production arm. To understand more about the similarities and differences between the worlds of gaming and film and television, I wanted to talk to Tanya Watson who is an industry veteran and now COO and president of Bad Robot Games. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So could you just start by telling us a bit about Bad Robot and why it makes sense for a film and production company to expand into games? Bad Robot has been exploring game creation and co-development for many years now, actually. And through it, they found that there was something really compelling here, that being able to interact with your story experiences and being able to level up those game experiences with Hollywood talent was something that was very interesting to them. And so they formally started Bad Robot Games just a few years ago, where we could work together not just games outside of Hollywood, but as a department of Bad Robot, which is inclusive of film, TV, animation, sounds, workshop. They actually create props and production. 
So us being together and in a collaboration means that we could really leverage what makes each best and hopefully will lead to more interesting stories being told on the linear side, on the Hollywood side as well as us being able to take advantage of the opportunities to tell better stories on the game side. And as you've kind of operated at this intersection, what have been some of the challenges, things that have gone wrong, things that you've learned as you've gone along this journey? Certainly, I think one of the challenges has been maybe not paying as much respect to the medium as it deserves. And in particular, game making is not film with an interactive component. Game making is its own thing. And so if you don't have the experts running that process, I think that's where it kind of gets into trouble. And so as you can imagine, coming into a Hollywood-based company, there is a bit of education that comes along with it because it is just a different enterprise and it's a different industry. And so we tackle that by being as transparent as possible and look for as many opportunities for collaboration and insight as possible. And we've learned a ton as well, like from the Hollywood side, as far as what makes a compelling story, what drives the motivation of these characters, how do we find the right people that can really bring life to the stories that we're telling in an interactive way. So there continues to be a lot of knowledge sharing, but I think it has to start with the respect on both sides for each of the mediums. Games today are a lot bigger and a lot snazzier than they were a couple of decades ago when it was people playing on their Nintendo 64s. How has the cost of making a top-of-the-range game changed over time? Has it become more expensive? Oh, absolutely. You know, we used to say back in the mid-2000s, $100 million budget, it was a huge sum of money, right? It's almost incomprehensible. Today, I'd say a huge sum of money would be more like half a billion dollars to develop a franchise. And that's a five times increase on what I would consider a top end game development budget. And there's certainly some that are even more than that and certainly some quite a lot that are less than that. But that doesn't include marketing budget or anything like that either, just to kind of make the game experience. One development that's had a lot of attention in recent months is the example of The Last of Us, which is this sort of post-apocalyptic game that was developed about a decade ago and has now been converted into a very successful television show. Could you just tell us a bit more about whether you expect to see more of that flow of intellectual property from the gaming world back into film and television going forward? I think in the example of The Last of Us, you had a story that was executed beautifully in a game It's no surprise that when you take that and then execute that beautifully in a TV series that it would find its audience, right? If anything, it just opened up the audience even more broadly, right, to people who didn't even realize that such a beautiful story could be told in a game. As we're seeing this industrial intermixing of Hollywood entertainment industries and games, what you're seeing is technology companies that are becoming entertainment companies and vice versa. And so by the nature of those two things happening, we're going to see a lot more interesting collabs as well as adaptations, as well as cross-medium experiences that are built. And beyond the characters and the worlds, to what extent is it possible to actually reuse some of the, the technologies between film and games, for instance, say, you know, digital simulations and virtual sets? Early in my career, I was a cinematics producer for Gears of War 2. 
And even way back when we used to talk about this, that was like 2007, 2008, we all saw it coming right with the fidelity of games getting to where they were, this opportunity to have a lot more reuse between the pipelines. And I think that now we are finally at that point where the technology has gotten so advanced and there has been so much work in non-gaming enterprises to build very high quality assets as well as the virtual sets that I imagine that in the next few years, we'll likely see something that was produced with a pipeline that could have gone either way or could go either way, that it is being developed and maybe as a film, but the assets are so reusable for games that they could just be used directly. I think we're realistically very close to being there. And would you say you continue to see any kind of snobbery within Hollywood towards the game sector? The interesting thing that I've seen, which is actually a shift, is almost nervousness, not snobbery. It's nervousness about the fact that I think the games industry has become such a huge money-making enterprise. And the feeling is, though, there's a little bit of trepidation that potentially it could replace traditional forms of entertainment. And of course, we don't believe that, right? It's like, we know that there's a place where people are just going to want to sit and watch something versus interact with something, be in something. But I have certainly seen that on the Hollywood side, not necessarily with Bad Robot, but with some other Hollywood folks are like, oh, what's going to happen to our industry right now that games are so huge? So it's actually kind of gone the other way. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks today. Of course, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Alice, Mike, what strikes you most about what you've heard so far? This whole conversation is reminding me a little bit of a company on my patch that's very well known in this part of the world and not so much outside of it. C Limited, S-E-A, which was briefly in 2021, Southeast Asia's largest listed company during the peak of the tech market boom. It's a tech conglomerate, essentially, and there's a big portion of it, which is made up of the company that it originated as, which is Garena, which is a video games business. It produces a mobile game called Free Fire. This game is absolutely enormous. It has a huge user base. It's incredibly popular. It's persisted over a number of years. And essentially, this business, Garena, that side of it for C, makes enormous amounts of money because all of the sort of research and design costs were front-loaded for making the game. And keeping it running while people pay for it is not all that expensive relative to the revenue it makes. And there's lots of people around the world that have never heard of the game. So that I, I was thinking a little bit about C when I was listening to that. Yeah, I was struck by you know, how big this has all become. The idea of people spending half a billion dollars on a game is obviously very striking, but also by just how broad gaming is. So we have, you know, Tom with his, frankly, productivity enhancing Wordle habit. <laughs> and you have people in Southeast Asia playing Free Fire on their mobiles. Some of the really high spec games now, they are cinematic in the stories that they tell and the way that they look and they seem like they would be like a substitute for movie going or cinema in terms of what sort of entertainment itch they scratch. If I interrogate my own Sims habits, perhaps that's sort of a substitute for watching something like reality TV, say. But uh, it does seem like there are games that could replace or substitute for basically sort of any kind of entertainment or media habit that we have. Literally everything could be gamified in some way. 
There's obviously one form of both relaxing and informative entertainment that gaming can't replicate, and that is reading the print and digital editions of The Economist. I'm very keen to read this week our coverage of the value of university degrees to find out whether I wasted a chunk of money in three years of my life. Yes, and I really enjoyed reading my colleague Kerian's piece on the IMF's identity crisis. The institution is somewhat caught in the China-US rivalry ahead of all and sundry descending on Washington DC next week for the IMF's annual spring week. And listeners can read those pieces for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. That's if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we'll be looking at the changing nature of game distribution and how game companies are approaching a disruptive force that has upended other entertainment forms like film and music, the rise of streaming. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Alice, Mike, before the break, we heard how TV and film studios have made the move into games, which are now being produced with these kind of Hollywood-level budgets. And what's interesting is that for game makers, that really raises the stakes when it comes to finding the best way to monetize those products that they're investing in developing. Yeah, the film industry uh, seems to have got this down to a sort of fine art with box office releases that then go to cable before everything finally goes to streaming. I was really interested to read in Tom Wainwright's special report that streaming-only services represent less than 1% of total game spending. So it seems like it has been harder to get that final step to work. That's right, and it's certainly not for a lack of trying by gaming firms. In recent years, we've seen businesses like Microsoft and Google trying to make a success of of streaming in games. To talk about how the industry is exploring these new distribution models, I spoke to Nick Lytle, who used to work as an executive at Spotify and is now applying his expertise as a consultant to the gaming industry. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks today. Thank you for having me. So streaming has been slower to catch on in gaming compared with other entertainment forms. Why is that? Yeah, I think there's basically two drivers. One is there's definitely an added layer of technical complexity with game streaming, where it's not just streaming a static piece of content like it is with music and with TV and film content. The local device actually needs to render the game and adapt to any input from the user. So what cloud gaming companies need to figure out is basically either putting a console or gaming PC into the cloud, 
allow a user to see the output of that and then to be able to provide input into that game, whether through a controller or some other type of input. So that is very difficult to do. And I think you've seen a lot of big cloud companies with cloud businesses such as Google and Microsoft kind of taking a first big swing at it. And then also just from a, particularly on the console market, those business models are generally described as a razor and blade business model where generally you sell the console at a loss with the idea that you're really making your money off of selling complementary goods, i.e. the games. And they've just been making so much money and they've been growing so much with that model. So I think that's why you might be seeing companies like Sony PlayStation, which is in a position of market leadership. That's why they might be a little bit gun shy of going super deep on cloud streaming because they've made such a big and profitable business with the console market. Yeah, there's an interesting analogy there with television because one challenge that television streaming has had to confront is getting companies who own the content to agree to distribute it to another company's platform. Has there been a similar issue in the gaming industry? Yeah, I mean, I think if you go back to why did streaming businesses happen, you know, with music, it was really a response to piracy, crushing recorded music sales, specifically CDs. So I think that was kind of the call to action, particularly with Spotify coming out. I don't necessarily see the same problem, if you will. I think the core hypothesis with cloud gaming is it costs a lot of money to get into a console ecosystem. You know, you need to spend somewhere between three to five hundred dollars just to get the device. And then if you add on accessories and memberships and games, that adds up pretty quickly. So I think where there's a lot of excitement is like, okay, can cloud gaming effectively remove that barrier to entry by just taking away that significant upfront cost of the console and just allowing users to directly get into the game in a much more frictionless way? So I think it's less of a responding to a problem. It's more of a, is there a bigger market out there? So it's more kind of demand creation oriented. Another potential challenge I could see for game streaming is the fact that many gamers will tend to focus their attention on one or two games at a time, whereas in music or TV, having a wider variety of content at your fingertips is arguably more important. To what extent could this be another hurdle in the way of the growth of game streaming? I don't think it's a non-starter by any means. There's definitely fundamental differences in the engagement patterns across music, TV, film, and, and gaming. So with games, it's all over the place. I mean, you could play a game for five hours, and that could be your favorite game of all time. I mean, you can also have games that you play for thousands of hours. So there's, a, I think, a much wider distribution of engagement with games, which I think it'll make it tricky to figure out the right balance, to figure out the right value proposition for a streaming subscription model for games. But I don't think that it's impossible. And when they provide a subscription model, they're on average seeing people playing more games. I think if people have access to a portfolio of games and they're able to easily access them, I think you're going to see people playing more games on average. And that's just kind of hearkening back to my Spotify experience. Like this discovery is such a powerful thing that leads to customer delight. People will continue to subscribe to your service if you're discovering more games. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks today. Thank you for having me. 
I'm back with The Economist's Tom Wayne right now. Tom, thanks for sticking around. No problem. So what's your views on streaming? Is it the next big thing in how people engage with games? I think it's early to say, but for what it's worth, my early conclusion is that it's not going to completely replace console gaming and PC gaming in the way that TV movie streaming pretty much has replaced the DVD and seems to be replacing cable. Because as Nick was saying, it just is not a perfect substitute yet. And I suspect probably never will be quite a perfect substitute. But I think it could be an interesting compliment. And, you know, you can imagine people who are serious about gaming may well want to have a console at home. But if they're on the move and they want to pick up a game somewhere else on their mobile or if they're staying overnight somewhere else, then streaming could be a you know reasonable substitute in that sense. And I think, you know, maybe one of the biggest areas of potential for game streaming is just in a different kind of game that relies a bit less on kind of lightning reactions. You know, there are some games that are very, very hard to play perfectly over streaming because they rely on such quick response time that the streaming technology just can't really keep up. But games don't all have to be like that. So I think there's something there, but I think it's probably going to complement existing modes of game playing rather than replace them entirely. It's also been interesting to watch over recent years how gaming has not only become an increasingly popular entertainment medium, but also a pretty serious sport with professional players, giant tournaments, big cash prizes, and even adoring fan bases. Could you tell us a bit about the role that esports have played in fueling the growth of gaming? Yeah, so I mean, esports, they remain a bit of a niche and it varies enormously depending on where you are in the world. There are some countries where they're huge and others where they've not yet really broken through. As part of doing the report that we published recently, I went to South Korea, which is seen by most people as being the kind of home of esports. And it's huge there. You know, people say that the national sport there is League of Legends, which is a video game, and, and they're only half joking. You know, it really is enormous. And I went to a game there and you know it was like going to a football match it, it was similar kind of atmosphere there was all the excitement of a live event and people paid for tickets to go and you know so i think for the companies there are a couple of reasons for doing it one is that they make money from the leagues themselves you know they sell tickets and they sell broadcast rights just in the way that you do with any other sports the other one though and i think this is probably the bigger deal is that it just helps to create a buzz around the game it's a great source of publicity if when you switch on, you know, YouTube or Twitch or one of these other streaming services, you see people playing this game. And actually, I spoke to one American developer of video games, which told me that actually they deliberately target the South Korean market with their new releases, even though South Korea is not a gigantic market. It is an important trend-setting market because esports are so big there. And if a game gets onto the esports radar, then suddenly it's everywhere. And last question for you, Tom. What do you think gaming is going to look like in a decade's time? How do you think new technologies like virtual and augmented reality and even generative AI might reshape the industry? It's really hard to say. I mean, it's changed so much even in the past decade that in a decade or more, very hard to know. I suppose there are a couple of big unknowns around VR and AR, that's virtual reality and augmented reality. VR has been seen by some people as the next big thing, but so far it's kind of failed to really, really take off. AR, which is slightly different, that involves mapping computer graphics onto the world around you, probably has more potential if and when people can make it work, but no one seems quite sure when that's going to be. It could be five years, could be 10 years, 
could be never. The other thing to keep an eye on, I think, is artificial intelligence. And that, again, we're in very early days of that, but it's probably going to disrupt all kinds of industries. And I think gaming could actually be one of the first ones to be disrupted and one of the ones that could be disrupted the most because of all entertainment media, gaming is incredibly resource intensive. The interactive nature of games means that they need to be populated with just loads of content, whether that's characters or alternative lines of dialogue, depending on what the player does. I read one example recently that the game Red Dead Redemption 2 has apparently something like 60 hours of original music in it. Get an idea of quite how much work goes into these games. And a lot of that work is stuff that could potentially be done by AI. Music can be generated by AI. Gaming landscapes can be generated much more quickly by AI. And so you've got the prospects of these so-called AAA games, the really kind of high fidelity, graphically intensive ones, which take literally years to make. Potentially, they could be made a lot quicker. So that's another thing to watch. I think in future, AI could mean a new types of game and possibly a lot more of them. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. So, Mike, Alice, the gaming industry has has clearly gone through an incredible phase of growth and is now far more sophisticated than it was when I was playing Crash Bandicoot on my PlayStation. If you were a film exec or producer, would you be worried that gaming is coming for your lunch? I'm very relieved that you did a at one point, play uh, games that were entirely for amusement. Um, But on your serious question, yeah, I mean, I think it's clear from their behavior that they're at least a little worried. I don't think that the film execs and producers would be rushing to sort of make these games if they didn't think that they were potentially a substitute for the sort of entertainment that they produce. And surely there are only so many eyeballs or sofa hours to go around. And if people are playing sort of grand cinematic games, I'd imagine they might have a little less time to watch uh, grand movies. That said, I think it's possible this doesn't necessarily play out in the rise of games swallowing up movies or television or other kinds of, of entertainment. The people who were itching to play the Harry Potter game are the same people who will be itching to watch the Harry Potter television show. It's been announced as in the works. It's clear that there's sort of still plenty of demand for the sort of older entertainment categories. And, you know, if anything, perhaps people will segregate themselves more cleanly into I'm interested in this specific kind of content. So I'm really interested in Harry Potter or zombie horror genre type stuff with The Last of Us, either the game or the television show. And so maybe you'll get a slicing up of the entertainment industry that way, but games won't necessarily eclipse those other ways of consuming those kinds of stories. Yeah, I was really interested when you were chatting there about streaming. And I I thought your point, Tom, that the fact that people will often just play one video game for very extended periods of time was a really good one. And I think that got me thinking, too, about the fact that one thing that's happened in the past decade in particular with all forms of culture, whether it's video games, TV, music, all sorts of different subcultures, is that there's much less of a sort of obvious monoculture anymore. There's much less, there's just sort of one single stream of mainstream culture. I think back to when I was a kid and there were like five video games that everyone seemed to play. Everyone remembers playing 
GoldenEye and maybe the early Call of Duty games and Mario Kart and and played FIFA at uni and all of that. Now I have friends, the ones that do play video games, and they'll often dedicate fairly significant portions of their lives to playing games that I've never heard of. You've got a lot of big ones, but you've got a lot, a huge number of smaller ones too. And that's where you get bringing a lot of money and a lot of potential seriousness to casual stuff. There's people who spend hours on Discord watching someone else play a video game, for example. So you can see how this is just enormous business relative to what it was when we were a little bit younger. And it feels like you've had sort of these small number of forks of options for what you do in the video games business split off into endless numbers where you can have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different subcultures, all of which incredibly lucrative to the people that make these games. Yeah. I, for one, am still very curious to see how the release of Apple's headset, which I believe we're expecting this summer, will impact the gaming world. I think it's fair to say that Meta's Oculus has not exactly seen massive adoption, but Apple does have a much better track record of reshaping consumer attitudes toward technology and, and frankly, a much stronger brand than Meta. Now, given the first iteration of this headset is rumored to be costing something like $3,000, maybe adoption will be somewhat slow, but like with any new technology, that will presumably come down over time. So for the moment, I'm going to be keeping an open mind and and an eager eye on that one. And who knows, maybe it will be the thing to get me to finally embrace playing a few games here and there. Yeah, I actually was invited to go down to Meta's offices in DC last week and try out the Quest Pro 2, I think is what it's called. And I can't decide whether it sort of radicalized me against these headsets or or in favor of them (laughs) because it was enormously heavy and like Mm. quite uncomfortable to wear. And I did feel extremely nauseous for the first like 20 minutes that I had it on. (laughs) But once you were sort of in the virtual universe that they have built, it was quite cool. People still didn't have legs, but it was sort of visually very stimulating. So I guess I'm sort of half in, half out on that one. But certainly it was fun to try it. Your nausea causing you to be sick all over Mark Zuckerberg's invisible metaverse legs. I'm not, I'm not sure the company is going to thank you or invite you back. Well, it'll all be worth it when we can uh, play Wordle in 3D. <laughs> you absolute nerd. <laughs> but with that, I think it's time for us to segue to our stats of the week. Mike, care to kick us off? Yes, and my statistic of the week is 5.5%, which is the new refinancing rate offered by the State Bank of Vietnam, which is Vietnam's central bank. I feel that it's gone a little bit missed that Vietnam has started to cut interest rates. I don't know whether this is a sort of canary in the coal mine situation, but I think in most of the world, people are still talking about the potential of stopping hiking interest rates more than they are about cuts. This is actually the second interest rate cut that the State Bank of Vietnam has gone for. They cut different benchmark interest rate in the middle of March. Obviously, it's a slightly unusual economy, quite closed in some ways in terms of the domestic financial system. But one to watch, I think. They're relatively bearish about the economic outlook at Asia at the moment. And yeah, one to watch. 
Yes, I am among one of the many who hadn't noticed that uh, Vietnam was cutting interest rates, which is fascinating. A lot of the emerging market central banks were well ahead of the developed ones in terms of starting to hike interest rates. So I guess we'll see whether Vietnam is a forebear of what is to come elsewhere. My stat of the week this week, I pinched from last week's edition of The Economist from an excellent piece about rice and rice consumption. And within it was embedded the stat that the average person in Asia consumes 77 kilograms of rice in a year. And then I googled to see what the weight of an average Asian was, which is only 60 kilograms. So on average, Asians consume more rice in a single year than uh, their entire body mass, which I thought was kind of mad. I am pushing that average up by a couple of kilos, I'm afraid. So yeah, yeah, you've got to remove the outliers. On which side, Mike? <laughs> the, the rice consumption. <laughs> the rice consumption. But I suppose, as a result, both. <laughs> well, my stat of the week is 9.9 .9 million, which is the number of job openings in America in the most recently reported month, which was February. And that figure was down 632,000 on the prior month. Now, there is still about 1.7 job openings for every unemployed person in America. So the labor market remains very hot. But the fact that things are starting to ease off at least a bit should help with bringing inflation back under control. Importantly, those figures also predate the mini banking crisis that we had last month. So I suspect we will see things cooling off even more in the next round of figures. Yes, slightly cooler jobs numbers should certainly help the Fed with getting to a point where it too, just like Vietnam, can be cutting interest rates as well. And with that, all that's left to do is thank Tanya Watson and Nick Lytle. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Tingli Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.